Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 this morning as we continue in our study of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 15 through 18. We're kind of really just finishing up the prologue, kind of the uh, introduction of John here in John chapter 1. Suppose that you have an opportunity to share Christ with a friend or a family member, and the person says to you, You know, I'm really relatively happy just the way I am. I really enjoy not having anything to do. You know, like going to church on Sunday mornings. You know, it's kind of nice to just kind of have nothing to do on Sunday mornings. I don't have to go to church. So why should I believe in Jesus? Well, what would you say? What would you tell them? You know, there are many different things that could be said. It would seem that anyone who gave such an answer really has no understanding of his precarious standing before the judge of the universe. Because he's really just one breath away from eternal condemnation. And yet he thinks, well, everything's going okay. Nothing's happened to me yet. And he sees no need to be reconciled with God. He has no idea of the magnitude of his own sin and the guilt of, uh, or the absolute holiness and justice of God. So you may, you may need to explore those issues before your friend, and I think uh, they would appreciate the text, the message of our text here. But at some point, as I've already pointed out in our previous studies here in John, the issue becomes, who do you say that Jesus is? If he is who he claimed to be and who John presents him to be in this gospel, then it would be extremely foolish not to believe in him as your Savior and your Lord. And so in our text this morning, John's going to build on these wonderful truths that we saw in verse 14 and really give us four more reasons to believe in Jesus. You should believe in Jesus because he's greater than all the prophets. He provides abundant grace. He's greater than Moses and the law. And he is God's ultimate revelation to us. Now, you remember in verse 14, it said, And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In our text this morning, he's going to continue to unfold the glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal word. Someday when we see Jesus in the fullness of his glory, that sight will transform us to be like him. Because in 1 John 3 and verse 2, it tells us, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. So our text has a practical value. Not only pointing others to Christ, but also to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ as we see more of his glory now. Now, as I said last week, the background behind our text really probably is the encounter of Moses with God. You find that in Exodus chapter 33 
and Exodus 34. After Moses secures God's promise to go with them on their journey through the promised land or to the promised land, he then boldly asks in Exodus 33:18, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. God responds in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. And then God explains to Moses that he cannot see God's face and live, but he will show him his back. So Moses returns to Mount Sinai, and the Lord descends in the cloud, and we read in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will be by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation." So Moses asks to see God's glory, and God responds by showing him his sovereign grace, his compassion, and his truth. Now in our text here, John wants us to see that in Jesus, we see God's abundant grace and goodness far more than even Moses saw it, because Jesus is God's ultimate revelation to us. So You should believe Jesus because as eternal God, number one, he is greater than all the prophets. Look at verse 15. John bare witness of him that cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, and he he was before me. Now, Verse 16 seems to explain verse 14. And so verse 15 may be parenthetical. It may be like a, could put parentheses around it. And if the prologue is arranged in what is called a chiastic or parallel structure, and I have given you that structure there kind of in a diagram, and you can see kind of how the verses of these first 18 verses kind of match up together. Verses 1 and 2 match up with verse 18, verse 3 with 17, verse 4 and 5 with 16, verse 6 six through 8, verse uh, 15, verses 9 through 11 with verse 14, and then kind of verses 12 and 13 are the kind of the center of the structure here, the way it's, it's put together. And it gets, uh, it kind of sets the stage for the extended section on John the Baptist witness that will immediately follow in verse 19, that follows the prologue. Now, what does John the Baptist mean by his statement, He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me? Well, John the Baptist's reference to Jesus Christ being before him is significant. And it's significant in several ways. First of all, Jesus was the second cousin of John the Baptist. And yet from the account in Luke's gospel, John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. 
Secondly, the reference of, to Jesus not only being preferred before John and existing before John clearly is a reference to his eternality. Jesus Christ, the incarnate, incarnate word, the Logos, is eternally preexistent. He therefore not only preceded John chronologically, although not through birth, but also in rank. So the Apostle John wants us to see that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist and the other prophets, because whether the Baptist uh, fully recognized it or not, Jesus is the eternal word. He had a higher rank than John because he existed before John. And although he was younger than John, Jesus said that there was none greater than John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. And so if John also, or John himself testified that Jesus was greater than he, and if Jesus' words about, or excuse me, if John's words about Jesus may be taken to the point to his preexistence, then Jesus is greater than all the prophets. Jesus isn't just another prophet. You know, some people believe that, well, he's just another prophet. But he's not just another prophet. He's greater than all the prophets. And so we should believe in Jesus because he's greater than all the prophets. And secondly, we should believe in Jesus because he provides abundant grace for all who believe. Look at verse 16. And of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. As I said earlier, verse 16 seems to be explaining verse 14, which said Jesus was full of grace. And verse 17 is going to elaborate on the fact that Jesus is also full of truth. But Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So there is an infinite fullness, the very fullness of God in Jesus Christ. And when we receive Christ by trusting in him, we become children of God and thus heirs to all the riches of heaven. And so in verse 16, John means that all we who believe in Jesus have received an abundant supply of all that our souls need out of the full store that resides in him for his people. It is from Christ, it is from Christ alone, that all our spiritual wants have been supplied. Now I think that we need to consider what John means by this phrase, grace for grace. You know, it's written in such a way that it means that one thing is placed by uh, replaced by another and put in the place of another. We could understand it to mean that the grace of the law was replaced by the grace of Jesus Christ, but more likely, it does. It means that grace just seems to pour forth in ever new streams like a river, a never-ending waterfall. You know, sometimes if you've ever had the privilege of seeing these waterfalls around the world that just seem like they, they never end, worse, you know, somebody should turn the water off once in a while, you know. But the water doesn't turn off. It just keeps coming and it keeps coming and it keeps coming. You can stand there for all day and for all week and all month and the water just seems to keep coming and keep coming. And that's the picture, I believe, here that John gives us grace for grace. 
I suppose one of these waterfalls could run out of water at some place because the source could dry up or something. But you know what? Jesus, God's source, will never dry up. It's going to continue to come grace upon grace. I think another way of saying it is it's a perpetual, rapid succession of blessings. As though there's no interval between the arrival of one blessing and the receipt of the next. And when you add the idea of Jesus' fullness, at the very least, John wants us to see that in Him we get all the grace we need. It's an inexhaustible supply. It's never going to run out. But you know, it's easy to say that Christ satisfies our every need with His fullness and His grace, but it's another thing to really experience it. It's so easy, you know, when problems hit in our lives, difficulties, sickness, or trials. It's so easy that we turn someplace else for relief. We say, how am I going to get out of this mess? How am I going to work this out? For even many Christians turn to worldly techniques or tranquilizers or even alcohol to reduce stress and to calm their nerves. And don't get me wrong, I'm not discounting properly prescribed medications to treat our sicknesses, but we must not wholly depend on our own devices, our own remedies to deal with our problems, whether they be physical or emotional. Here's Jesus' prescription for peace in a troubled world. John 16 verse 33 says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Paul said that the way to overcome anxiety is to seek the Lord in prayer. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Maybe you're thinking this morning, uh, well, I've tried that, and the problems didn't go away. Well, Paul tried it too, remember? His problem didn't go away either. But he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for thee. Remember that grace, that overwhelming, never-ending, abundant supply of grace will just keep coming and it will give you strength even in weakness. The key to peace is not the absence of problems, but the presence of all-sufficient grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace for grace. And so we should believe in Jesus because of the abundant grace for all who believe. Number three, you should believe in Jesus because he's greater than Moses and, all, and the law. In verse 17, it says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Why does John introduce the law and Moses here? 
Well, again, because uh, for one thing, in, Mo- in Exodus 34, when God called Moses back to Mount Sinai to reveal his glory, he instructed him to cut out two stone tablets like the former ones that he had broken in anger. When he went down the mountain, he found the people were worshiping the golden calf. And God reissued the law on occasion of showing Moses his glory. And the law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, manifested God's grace, his loving kindness, and truth. If that passage really is the backdrop for these verses in John, then he is showing that as great as the law was, as great as Moses was, someone who embodied grace and truth, is now tabernacled with us. Remember that word in verse 14, dwelt? He's tabernacled. Someone who's full of grace and truth is tabernacled with us. Rather than offend the, Jew, the gospel's Jewish uh, audience here, the verse is designed to draw it in. If You want an even more gracious demonstration of God's covenant, love, and faithfulness. John tells his readers, you know what? It's found in Jesus Christ. And so John is saying, if you thought that God's gift of the law through Moses was a great thing, and it was a great thing, he's given an even greater gift now through Jesus Christ. But it seems to me that John is at the same time kind of drawing a contrast here between the inferiority of the law and the superiority of Jesus Christ. The contrast of the Christian way with the Jewish and and the function of of Moses as secondary and pointing forward to Christ. And that is a recurring theme throughout this gospel, as we'll find out. Now, by Moses was given the law, the moral law, full of high and holy demands, firm warnings against disobedience, the ceremonial law, full of burdensome sacrifices, ordinances, and ceremonies, which never healed the worshiper's conscience, and at best were only shadows of good things to come. But by Christ, on the other hand, came grace and truth. Grace by the full manifestation of God's plan of salvation, and the author of offer of complete pardon to every soul that believes on Jesus and truth by the unveiled ex, exhibition of Christ himself as a true sacrifice, the true priest, the true atonement of sin. I want you to also notice this, that this is the first time that John has used the human name Jesus. Before he's referred to him as the word Now he uses the word Jesus. And he uses this as a designation as Christ or Messiah. Actually, he uses the word Jesus or the name Jesus 256 times, more than any other gospel, more than a quarter of all the New Testament uses. He also uses Christ more often than any other gospel, although he only uses Jesus Christ together one other time, and that was in... uh, chapter 17 and verse 3, and then if you count chapter 20, verse 31, he says Jesus is the Christ. But in John 1, 17, here John is making it clear that the Word was in the beginning with God, the Word who was God, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, is none other 
than Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. As I pointed out last week in our last study, God's grace and truth reached their climax at the cross. His truth demanded the penalty for sin to be fully paid. His grace provided Jesus, the eternal Son of God, as the payment for sin for all who believe in Him. So make sure, make sure this morning that you've received God's gift of eternal life by trusting Jesus Christ as your sin bearer. And so John says that you should believe in Jesus because he is greater than all the prophets, including John the Baptist. You should believe in him because he provides abundant grace for all who believe. You should believe in him because he's greater than Moses and the law. And finally, you should believe in Jesus because he is God's ultimate revelation to us. Verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, at first glance, this verse seems to come out of nowhere. Why would John abruptly bring up the fact that no one has seen God? Well, I think there are two reasons. First of all, you remember Exodus 33 and 34. That's kind of the backdrop of these verses. And when Moses there asked God to show him his glory, God responded that no man could see him and live. And then secondly, verse 18 wraps up the the parallel structure, as I pointed out to you, how that verse 18 goes with verse 1 and 2. Okay? So he's kind of coming back and repeating that theme there. And... uh, Uh, It wraps up the prologue by tying it back to verse 1. We cannot know the invisible God unless he reveals himself to us, which he's done in the word. Jesus is the word. Jesus, who is the only son of God. Jesus, who is uh, the one who was with God, is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him to us. Now, you may wonder, even in places like Exodus 24 and verse 10, where it says that the leaders of Israel saw God. And Isaiah saw God in Isaiah 6 and verse 1, and yet God himself says that no one can see him and live. John says no one has seen God at any time. And Paul says no man has seen or can see God in 1 Timothy 6.16. So what about those passages? Is this a contradiction? That's what some people would try to say. The answer is that no one has seen the essence of God in his unmitigated glory. Those who got a vision of God either saw Christ in his precarnate glory, or they had an obscured vision of the glory around God's throne, And almost always those who got such a limited version or vision of God were terrified by the experience. But now John has revealed God to us, especially his abundant grace and truth. Now the words translated the only begotten son is once again a reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You know, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ is referred to as the only begotten Son of God. And that's on six different occasions. Indeed, Jesus Christ is the only Son which God the Father has begotten. And His Sonship by His Father refers to His 
physical incarnation. Our sonship as believers is by adoption. And so by verse 18, again, as in verse 1, the word was God, affirms Jesus' deity, but at the same time it distinguishes him with or from the Father. As in verse 1, it says the word was with God. He is the eternal Son of God. Always an intimate relationship with the eternal Father. And then the phrase there, in the bosom of the Father, that corresponds to the word was with God. And you see the parallel structure here in this. And it points to a close, unbroken fellowship that Jesus enjoyed with the Father as seen in, later in his prayer that we'll see in John chapter 17. It also shows us the horror of the cross of Jesus. When as he bore our sins, remember what he cried out? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, the word here in verse 18, declared, is a word from which we get our word exegete. Now, if you were here on Wednesday night, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? See, that's why it's important sometimes to come on Wednesday so you can understand what you're hearing on Sunday. Uh, Just a commercial there. But uh, exegete means to consider out or to draw out. We talked about it Wednesday night. Exegesis is drawing truth out, doctrine out of the Bible. There's another word called eisegesis. That's putting words into the Bible. That's putting doctrine into the Bible. That's taking a verse of and saying, well, this is what this means. You know, and they people build whole doctrines uh, uh, out of, uh, of those kind of uh, exercises. They, they say, uh, this is what this means. That's eisegesis. But the word declared here is from the word where we get exegete means to draw out of. It's parallel, again, to verse 1, the Word. Just as the Word declares an unseen thought, so Jesus, the Word, declares the unseen God to us. The only way you can know the Father is through Jesus, His Son. Now, there are some translations that use the word explain instead of declared. But I think King James Bibles rightly translated declared. Doesn't that come across much stronger? You know, people can explain all kinds of things, but to declare something has got more force to it. It's it's stronger. It's more emphatic. And that's what the word means. It's to proclaim aloud. It's more than an explanation. It's a declaration. Elsewhere, John writes, In 1 John 2.23, Whosoever denied the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Here in John 5.23, Jesus says, He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father, which which hath sent him. And so that means that the cults, which all deny the deity of Jesus, cannot bring anyone to God. You you understand what I'm saying? The cults who deny the deity of Christ cannot bring people to God. There is what is called the insider movement going on in our world today. 
It's a group or a network of people from non-Christian religions who consider themselves followers of Jesus, but they remain rationally and relationally and culturally and socially a part of the religious community uh, that they're in. Those members of insider movements do not typically join Christian churches in their area. They may see themselves as a part of the, the body of Christ, but they're not. This movement is observed among a number of religious groups, most notably among the Muslims. Jews would be included and Hindus and others. As people, religions say, yes, we follow Christ, but uh, not in the way you do. Not in the way the Bible tells us to. Yes, he's a prophet. He's He's a good man. He was a great teacher. But he's not just that. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. The insider movement has changed some of the terms in their translations of the Bible. They use Instead of using father and son, uh, they say those are offensive to the Muslims. And so they've perverted the core of the gospel, and it's fine to explain what that term means, but it's not fine to change the terms that God has used to reveal himself to us in his Son. So John didn't write these things to satisfy our curiosity or stimulate intellectual discussions. Rather, he wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that we will believe in him for eternal life. That goes back to our introduction, chapter 20, verse 31. But why should you believe in Jesus? Well, John says you should believe in Jesus because he's greater than all the prophets. He provides abundant grace for all that trust in Him. He's greater than Moses and the law. He is God's ultimate revelation of Himself to us. And if you turn away from faith in Jesus Christ, you are rejecting the witness that God has given concerning His Son. If you believe, then you can say with John in 1 John 5 and verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come. And hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I think there are two parts in believing. It's not where, it's, and I, I don't want you to misunderstand me that there's, you do this and then you do this, but there are, it can be uh, two aspects to believing. You must believe that Jesus is God, Lord and Savior. If you believe in Him, it must be Him. Second, it must be true belief. You know, there's a kind of faith that will not save. It's intellectual. It's more than just knowing that Jesus is God, Lord and Savior. You don't just know it, you believe in Him. We see part of what it means to believe in, in Luke 13, verse 3 and 5, where Jesus said in both of those verses, except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. John 3.16 says, if we believe, we won't perish. Luke 13, 3 and 5 say, if we don't repent, we will perish. And so part of what it means to believe is to repent. Many people say you don't have to repent to be saved. You just got to believe. Well, 
I think that's part of believing. That's what the Bible seems to be teaching to me. And I trust to you as well. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so we must turn from going our way to going Jesus' way. Jesus describes it in this way in Matthew 16, 25. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. We must give up our life, our temporal life, in order to get eternal life. Jesus also in Matthew 10, 38. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. I think there's another place we can learn what it means to believe in Jesus, and that's in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, as well as verse 13. It says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Believing in Jesus means confessing Jesus as your Lord and calling on him to save you from sin and hell. So many times people say, well, just believe. Or just say this little prayer and you'll be saved. And churches all across our nation, even so-called independent fundamental churches who said, just say a prayer and you're saved. People come down the aisle, they say a prayer, and they go back, and they've really not been saved. They've just made a false profession. Because they really haven't believed, and they haven't repented. And they go back out the doors the same way they came in. Back to the same life. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When you understand your true condition and your need for salvation, you'll be ready to receive Jesus Christ. He's greater than all the prophets. He provides abundant grace. He's greater than Moses in the law, and he's God's ultimate revelation to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven.